Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground. Alternative activists empowerment talk radio. Speaking truth to ours and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro. That's nothing. What were you before the white man means you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? As you honor our forefathers and foremothers, I urge you to honor our living heroes. When you honor the names of Matt Turner, Harriet Tubman, and Malcolm X, I urge you to honor the names of Geronimo Zijaga, Sundiata Akoli, Matulu Shakur, and Mumia Abu-Jamal. America's chickens are coming home to roost. Violence begets violence. Hatred begets hatred. And terrorism begets terrorism. Our common ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Thank you for being with us. Stay tuned. And thank you for being with us tonight at Our Common Ground. We welcome our listeners out there in broadcast land. And we also welcome our chatters. If you'd like to join our chatters in our chat room, we're a discussion about what happens during this broadcast, what is being said, and what people, how people respond to it who are not callers. We also invite you at Our Common Ground. Write this down. Our number, 347-838-9852. I'm Janice Graham, and I am your host, speaking truth to power and ourselves. A number of political commentators and social scientists have been speculating about the implications of the election of President Barack Obama for uh, race relations. Some of the most optimistic have suggested that the 2008 election demonstrated that whites' racial attitudes have undergone a fundamental transformation. Since the first half of the 20th century, whites have become much more accepting, we think, of the principles of racial equality, even as they have continued to endorse negative racial stereotypes about African Americans. Some scholars argue that this ambivalence has been exploited by contemporary political elites who have learned to fashion subtle racial appeals that activate latent attitudes without appearing to violate widely held norms or racial equality. This strategy has been dubbed by our guest tonight Dr. Vincent L. Hutchings, as racial priming. And we will talk with him about racial priming, 
racial coding in American politics. We'll also be talking with him and getting his assessment of our our current political agenda and some of the very riveting events that have occurred since January. Uh, and even so since uh, the inauguration of President Barack Obama. Dr. Vincent Hutchings is a professor of political science at the University of Michigan and a research professor at the Institute for Social Research. He received his Ph.D. in 1997 from the University of California, Los Angeles. He teaches courses in African-American politics, public opinion, and voting behavior, and Congress. And we certainly will be talking to him about the United States Congress. He is a principal investigator for the American National Election Study at the University of Michigan, along with uh, two other investigators, Simon Jackman and Gary Segura, at Stanford. Uh, His general interests include public opinion, elections, voting behavior, and African-American politics. He was a Robert Wood Johnson health policy scholar in 2000 to 2002 and has received multiple grants from the National Science Foundation and most recently in 2009 for his project entitled Elite Communications and Racial Group Conflict in the 21st Century. He is currently the University of Michigan Principal Investigator for the National American National Election Study for the 2012 election cycle, and we are so very, very pleased to have him, and right after this, we'll be talking with him about all of those things, racial coding, racial priming in American politics. You're listening to Our Common Ground. With negative commentary about government, we can provoke and activate people's racial attitudes. It's a very subtle process, but very effective. And having demonstrated it with an experimental design, we're actually fairly confident that it's a real effect. The following is a paid political announcement from Mr. John Chapman, chairman of the Mid-City Development Plan. It does not necessarily represent the viewpoint of this station. Ladies and gentlemen, you ask, what are the Negroes kicking up such a fuss about? You ask, what do they want? Well, I'll tell you what they want. They want our jobs and our houses and our churches and our country clubs and our beaches. Now, down south, they know how to handle them. They keep them out of their schools and their parks and their restaurants. Up here, we gave them the inch and they took the mile. We gave them education, we gave them jobs, we gave them neighborhoods of their own. And what are they doing now? (laughs) They're demonstrating. They're marching up and down the streets and carrying signs. They're saying, we want full citizenship, we want full integration. Well, let me tell you this. 
God made them black because they are different. And no bleeding hearts and no new laws are going to change them overnight. Don has got a point here. Everybody knows he's black, but there has been a very intentional effort to paint him as somebody outside the mainstream other. He's not Mostly one below of the us. Radar screen. He's below the radar screen. I think, I think the McCain campaign has been has been scrupulous about not directly saying it, but it's the subtext of this campaign. Everybody knows it. And when they send, there are certain kind of signals. As a, as, a, as a native of the South, I can tell you when you see the, this Charlton Heston ad, the one, that that's code for he's uppity. He ought to stay in his place. You know, we everybody gets that who's from, uh, you know, a southern background. We all understand that. When McCain comes out and starts talking about affirmative action, I'm against quotas. We get what that's about. We understand where that's coming from. You needed that job, and you were the best qualified. But they had to give it to a minority because of a racial quota. Is that really fair? Harvey Gantt says it is. Gantt supports Ted Kennedy's racial quota law that makes the color of your skin more important than your qualifications. You'll vote on this issue next Tuesday. Four racial quotas, Harvey Gantt. Against racial quotas, Jesse Helms. Why do you think it is that of the 110 Supreme Court justices we've had in this country, 108 of them have been white? Well, I think white men were 100% of the people that wrote the Constitution, 100% of the people who signed the Declaration of Independence, 100% of the people who died at Gettysburg and Vicksburg, probably close to 100% of the people who died at Normandy. This has been a country built basically by white folks in this country who were 90% of the entire nation in 1960 when I was growing up, Rachel, and the other 10% were African Americans who had been discriminated against. That's why. So, but does that mean that you think that there are 108 of 110 white Supreme Court justices because white people essentially deserve to have 99.5% of those positions? That there's My, nothing that doesn't reflect any sort of barrier to those positions by people who aren't white. You think that's what they? You think that's just purely on the basis of what white people have deserved to get? I think a lot of people got up there for a lot of reasons, but my argument would be get the finest mind you can get. Get the real scholars, whether you agree with Bork or Scalia or not. They're, they're tremendous minds, and I think uh, there are other minds. I'm sure the Democratic Party, I'm sure, has women there that can stand up head-to-head -head with Scalia and make the case who have got tremendous credentials, knowledge, background, but they, this one doesn't have that. She was appointed because she's a Latina and an Hispanic and a woman. She's I mean, also, look at she is also the judicial n nominee who has more judging experience than any judge who's gone up, say, in the past. I don't know what is it, 70 years. She has she been an appellate court judge um, of some distinction for a lot longer than Judge Roberts was, Judge Alito um, was. I mean, she, sure. It's not like she was she was Rachel. picked off the, she was like picked out of the minor leagues and brought up here, Pat. Listen, it certainly is. Look at her own words in the New York Times from the tapes. It's in the New York Times, June 11. She said, I'm an affirmative action baby. Yeah. I got into Princeton on affirmative action. I got into Yale. I didn't have these scores that these other kids did. How did she get on Yale Law Review? Affirmative action. How did she get on the federal bench by Moynihan? Moynihan needs an Hispanic woman. I'm not a witch. I'm nothing you've heard. I'm you. None of us are perfect, but none of us can be happy with what we see all around us. Politicians who think spending, trading favors, 
and backroom deals are the ways to stay in office. I'll go to Washington and do what you'd do. I'm Christine O'Donnell, and I approve this message. I'm you. Thank you for joining us tonight at Our Common Ground. Tonight, racial profiling, priming, and coding in American politics. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you with my guest tonight, Dr. Vincent Hutchings, Professor of Political Science and Research at the University of Michigan. Joining us now, Dr. Vincent Hutchings, welcome to Our Common Ground. Thank you so much uh, for agreeing to be with us here tonight on this very tough and complex subject. It's my pleasure, Janice. Listen, um, there there are so many things that your work uh, has uh, set the background for us to talk about, but one of the things that I do want to uh, uh, start off by is having you describe to us uh, some of your work and and this whole notion of what I think you have coined some terms, racial coding and priming. Um, and, and, and talk to us about how that works in campaigns and how it works in uh, the ongoing process of political inter in, engagement uh, in our society. Certainly, I'll, and I'll try to be brief. Um, first of all, I, the term, I didn't coin, uh, coin the term. It's, uh, other researchers have used the phrase. But I've, uh, along with some collaborators, worked on this issue over the last 10 years or so. Basically, the idea is that in, with the successes of the civil rights movement, it became increasingly difficult for politicians to kind of uh, raise the specter of uh, race, actually, or to, to inject race into political campaigns, because if they did so, people would accuse them of being a racist. And across the political spectrum, that label was really toxic. So according to this line of research uh, that myself and many others have engaged in, politicians, in order to encourage people to bring their racial passions to bear on their political decisions have resorted to more subtle and somewhat indirect efforts. Uh, again, the idea here being that the country has changed, I suppose you could say, in terms of the racial attitudes, changed in the sense that people are no longer prepared to accept the kind of uh, venom, racial venom, that was fairly common in the 50s and, and prior to that time. But in spite of the changes that are, many would say, genuine, they, uh, many white Americans continue to resent and to, to direct animosity at African Americans and other minorities. So it's kind of two warring 
um, perspectives in the mind of white America. And politicians want to try to exploit that. That is to say, they want to inflame the racial resentments without running afoul of the kind of uh, sense of racial fair play. And in order to do that, so goes the argument, they need to adopt these indirect and subtle efforts, which we refer to as racial priming. Essentially, it's uh, the use of code words like inner city, code words like um, like urban, other code words that don't actually raise the specter of race, but which imply it and suggest it to the to the viewing or to the listening audience. So the use of code words and some other strategies of a similar vein um, are used by politicians in order to get people to, well, to bring their, their racial perspectives to bear on their political decisions. Well, you know, one of the things I um, – are there certain kinds of things that happen during the sisters, and certainly we want to talk about how – some of what you've just described has changed. And one of the reasons that I put together the clip that shows the 1960s, that was actually a 1960s political ad uh, that was from a small town in uh, Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And then I put it up against a discussion that Rachel Maddow had with uh, Pat Buchanan, who is an old-timer politician who knows what the rules are but tends to use his age, <laughs> the fact that he's ancient and hasn't learned very much from since 1955, um, that that he has become more, more bold. Yes. And then I looked at Chris, Christine O'Donnell, and um, who lost her race, but she seemed to have become an expert in the racial innuendo, in the racial priming that you talk about. Yes. Um, I, I did read your change are more of the same evaluating racial attitudes in the Obama era. Yes. And I did look at um, your one of your... Uh, the, the the process in which and some of the questions you were trying to ask in your your study um, back in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. In your work, have you found that there has been something different since it was published in 2000 that has occurred because or during what I call the era of Barack Obama? Well, I don't think that um, Obama... I don't I think that many of the, the the themes that myself and some other researchers have sought to explore uh maybe come to a head have been kind of uh highlighted by the Obama candidacy and the Obama presidency but I don't think anything fundamental has changed and and indeed you made a reference to an article I published a couple of years ago um and the main thrust of that article was that because and I should just step back very quickly and say that in the aftermath of the election of Barack Obama, many people, of course, we heard all the talk about post-racial and and all of the rest of this. And the the aim of my article was just to show that whites' racial attitudes actually haven't changed very much when it comes to policy matters. It, now, I want to be clear here that whites' racial attitudes have changed dramatically on other dimensions. 
uh, the very fact that we have a black president is not something to just dismiss. Fifty, sixty years ago, that was unthinkable. So, and you know, on a number of other dimensions, including just kind of personal interactions and and even the demise of, or at least the the decline of some racial stereotypes, there has been dramatic change. The point I wanted to make in my article, I'm not quite sure if this is what you were getting at, but I'll I'll, I'll just make this point and, and uh, well, stop talking, <laughs> is that uh, the, it, you know, black-white inequality is as profound today and indeed in light of the economic downturn even worse than it was 25, 30 years ago. So the issue for most black Americans isn't so much do you think I'm inferior, do you think I'm unintelligent, or do you want to have dinner with me, or can I date your daughter? The issue is can I get a job? Uh, you know, Can I have access to capital mm-hmm. in order to start a business mm-hmm. or buy my own home? Uh, basically, it has to do with public policies. And whites' attitudes with respect to public policies, the same public policies that uh, allow them to retain their privileged position in society, most whites have not changed those attitudes at all. Mhm. Mhm. And and you're 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 exactly right when you when 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 you say that is exactly the point uh that I was trying to get to about that article. One of the things um I guess for our, for our audience to understand where I'm coming from on all of these issues is that I grew up in the deep south. Mm-hmm. I am a child of Jim Crow. I attended segregated schools, public schools. Uh, I lived in a very clustered, segregated community that just so happened to be very rich in its resources. Um, and in the very early years of of my corporate career, I spent a great deal of time managing matters having to do with corporate responsibility to civil rights and um, civil rights law. Yes. Um, EEO and affirmative action and uh, disability accessibility issues, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things that I'm noticing, Vincent, is that people have come into the 1990s with an attitude that somehow those things don't matter and they and and their attitude both public elected officials as well as um uh people in that that control jobs uh the business community etc have come to some place where they feel that even the courtesy even the superficial uh, um, allegiance or acknowledgement of some of those those principles that were set during that time don't matter anymore. Uh, I'll give you a good example. Is and and you're best to speak to this is the kind of discourteous, uh, disrespectful behavior of this Congress, and I'm talking about both the Senate and the, the the house to this president and to this white house mm-hmm. despite it doesn't even matter if you don't agree with his policies 
I see. Well, I think I mean I've had I've had a variation on this conversation as you might imagine uh, quite often over the past couple of years since Obama's come into office, and I do think I just want to be clear here because I think the the view that I'm about to express isn't necessarily the one you hear very often. I do think that part of the animosity directed at President Obama is born out of, uh, well, some kind of racial consideration on the part. I mean, it, it's infused with some some racial animus. I think that's fair to say. It, that is to say that it, for some people, some of the time. But I actually don't think it is the primary driver. And that this is where I start to sound different than what I imagine many people have heard. And that's because we, I think, forget how the Republicans responded to the last Democratic president who was not black, um, the the guy they impeached, <laughs> Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. They accused mm-hmm. him of all manner of uh, nefarious actions in terms of uh, murder, uh, uh, fathering illegitimate children, engaging in all. I mean, they, and you, you know, my, what's my point in making reference to that? So yes, people have been very uh, uncivil in their reaction to Obama, part of which probably has something to do with race. But the very fact that the pre- the previous Democratic president was impeached, we've only had two presidents impeached in the entire history of this country. I think that should give us some perspective. It, it, Republicans would have responded this way to any Democratic president um, with maybe some changes at the margins because they oppose the very policies that those presidents of the Democratic Party, for the most Mm -hmm. part, tend Mm -hmm. to pursue. But does that reflect the changing attitudes of the electorate? For instance, if you look at a guy like John Walsh, who's a deadbeat dad, and if he lived here in Boston, Massachusetts, he would be in jail, because that's what they do to people who don't pay their child support uh, when when it's ordered by the courts. but here's a guy where everyone and uh, someone in our audience, probably uh, from Chicago, can correct me if I'm wrong, knew or should have known that this man was a deadbeat dad when he ran for office. But yeah. he won. Yeah. Um, and and I just uh, I don't know. I I I haven't. Um, I would my response. To, and I hear what you're saying, but my response to the to to what you're saying is simply that I think that it's more racial than what you and I might agree about. Okay. Um, and part of that has to do with a very key word that you that you used, and that is privilege. Yes. And privilege is so embedded in the notion of white supremacy. Yes. And I just I just have an idea that there's a great deal of racial resentment that goes yeah. on with this president. With Bill Clinton, I think that there was a lot of macho resentment. He was a good-looking, very smart, very in control, um, uh, very confident. Uh, people liked him, and I think that was a like a personal resentment, animosity that went on between he and people like Newt Gingrich, who yeah. was also should have been impeached, but <laughs> he left. <laughs> yeah, no, and you. and the other is that uh you know, I was doing a fellowship at the Harvard 
um, Kennedy School at the time of the impeachment, which was a wonderful place to be at that time. (laughs) And um, it, it, it was interesting that people were very angry with him for screwing up that badly. Yeah, for being with, stupid. A- angry with Clinton. Yes. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about the Democratic Republic of Cambridge. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, 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 I think people do see this very differently. But what I don't see is, and I'm starting to see it, I'm, I'm starting to see that people are clamoring to defend him against the kind of attacks for which he has been um, uh, subject. Yeah. But but let's go with your piece, and that is that this is about policy. What policies are we talking about, and are the policies uh, infused with some kind of um, – inspiration toward racial animosity. Well, I mean, I think you raise a lot of good points and it's um um it's important at least from my point of view that I be clear about uh some of these issues um because it's a, you know, these are emotional subjects and uh, subjects that we're all kind of invested in. Um I think that there are kind of two broad ways to think about issues of race. One of them has to do with what we think of as animosity or hostility or, or just kind of pure racism, people re- responding negatively to another person because of their race or ethnicity. And I think we focus on that a lot, uh, but in my opinion, we focus on that too much. Uh, so mm-hmm. this is a little – so just bear with me for a moment. Um, and I say we focus on it too much because we – by focusing on that kind of uh, racial issue or racial kind of uh, consideration, we don't focus on what I regard as the more important issue, which is uh, racial inequality. I mean, you talked about privilege as well, which is why I raised it. It it is more important to me that we address the lingering uh, deficits with respect to black and white uh, not to mention Latino, but certainly for the moment just black and white uh, income level, uh, levels of wealth, uh, health outcomes, um, uh, home ownership, employment. I could go on and on and on. I'm far more concerned about policies that need to address these historic inequities than I am with um, whether somebody doesn't like me. I hear you. I, I I do hear you, and it's a, uh, a certain kind of attitude that most uh, people who work prefer- professionally have to uh, maintain. But let me ask you about some of the policy. Okay. Um, let's talk about, first of all, the first challenge before this president and he came up with a stimulus package that was uh, not his fault, uh, too too little, too late. Wait a minute, Janice. Why wasn't it his fault? Well, it wasn't his fault that it was too late. 
what because about it shouldn't have part? come at the time at the time that the Bush administration was formulating the TARP um, uh, package. We knew that the housing market, especially the the secondary market, had crashed. Yes. So. President Barack Obama comes in, and he's trying to save us from falling off the cliff, and he comes up with a package that really delivers too little, too late to too few people. And it does not approach what the real illness is. It approaches it approaches some of the symptoms, but not the real illness. And, what, and the illness was really foreclosures. Yes. It had no foreclosure procedure. Okay. So that's where we were. He was challenged on that. My assessment, I want to know what your assessment is about why it was too little. Well, I think it was. Why he didn't go for the gusto. I think we can both agree that it was too little. And indeed, I think even the administration at this point would concede that point. Given that we have, you know, unemployment official unemployment at nine percent, and at sixteen percent for Black America, by the way, that's officially sixteen percent. But so why was it too little? Uh, well, because I suspect the administration made a judgment about what they could or could not get through Congress. Uh-huh. Uh But I also suspect that the administration was thinking about its own political fortunes and about its own political um, future. And they wanted to at least tamp down on the criticism that they were traditional big spending and big taxing liberals. So I don't think, uh, I think when President Obama does things that are worthy of praise, we should praise him. But when Mm -hmm. he does things that are worthy of criticism, we should criticize Uh him. Why is he afraid to be a hero? I, I, I don't know whether he's afraid to be a hero or not, but the fact that the stimulus wasn't sufficient isn't simply because they made a mistake. They knew at the time, there were criticisms at the time that the stimulus needed to be larger, but it wasn't in the political interest of the president to do that, and so they didn't pursue it. Okay. Uh, you know, I have this, Vincent, you, I, I just, I wrote a um, a post just just today. Yeah that said that many of the policies, the direction that this president is taking are not ones which I adopt. I have some better ideas. Too bad I'm not in the White House anymore. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and and that um, I wish that he would be more bold, more progressive. Of course, all progressive liberals think that way. And I'm also a socialist, and I'm not afraid to say it or ashamed of it. So here we are. And... <clears throat> And and I get the sense that, and, and in this post I said, but I'm not going to sit back as a a black so democratic socialist and watch this man take a beat down again, again, and again without some protest about those things for which he is not to blame. And when I was writing that, I was thinking to myself, gee, I'm so glad I'm going to talk to Vincent Hutchings tonight because I'm not sure why this is going this way. 
uh, I look back at the Jeremiah Wright thing and the race speech in Philadelphia. Uh, I, 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 I look back at who he has surrounding him in the White House and the, the you know, and there's a populist, uh, black populist um, feeling that he's not working on a black agenda. Well, uh, I think black people ought to work on a black agenda. Not the president of the United States is never going to work on a black agenda. We'll, but we'll have to part company on that. That's not my view. <laughs> I mean, most of the the country's social ills have directly to do with the historical. I you know I get that part. I do get that part. But I'm not understanding. For instance, and let's go back to two weeks to, to two weeks ago. He made a speech. He was talking about the debt ceiling, and he had explained to the American people very clearly what what was all about and what would happen and the consequences, et cetera, et cetera. And I was hoping that he would say, and I am saying to this Congress, I will give you two days. If I, if you don't deliver to the American people what America needs in two days, I will do it. And he didn't. Yes. Well, there were there were differing opinions. And I'm about, wondering if this is the racial politics that's going on. Well, I think there are differing there were differing legal uh, analyses as to whether or not that was constitutional. But but I don't I think. So there are a number of points you raise, and I'll, I'm trying to respond to them all very succinctly. Okay. I think, first of all, I, this idea that we can't expect the President of the United States to address the concerns that citizens of the United States have, who also happen to be of African uh, descent, I, I don't sign on for that. Uh, again, Afri- the, the most economically depressed community in this country, with the possible exception of Native Americans, and on some dimensions not even them, are African Americans. So why is it unreasonable for us to expect the government, including the president, including Barack Obama, who occupies the presidency, to do something about these long-standing problems? I think and I'll just make this other point and and you know, we can continue this exchange which I'm really enjoying. Um I made a comment earlier about the two different kinds of racism, right? Basically structural racism and kind of individual uh type racism. So a lot of African-Americans, a lot of African-American professionals are concerned about the individual racism that's directed at the person of Barack Obama. And, and, and I think they're right that there is, at least in some cases, racism directed at the president. But the president is a millionaire, and at the end of the day, he and his family will be fine. I'm far more concerned about the people who are not millionaires, who are okay. not named Barack Obama, who will not be on TV, those African Americans who, because of structural racism, are disadvantaged in the society, I want the government to do something about it. Yes, I agree. Uh, and I was talking about the agenda. For instance, I think that black people are not protesting, challenging the system at the local and state level in the way that it ought to be challenged and it ought to be structured in an organized organizing and agitating and initiating in the way that they ought to. I am certainly not uh dismissing the obligations and responsibilities of this president to not only articulate uh what what you've just um outlined, but I'm also not I'm hoping that 
at some point he is not going to totally abdicate his 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 responsibility to initiate at the federal level. Yes. Okay. Well, you know, we're, we're in agreement. For instance, if 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 you look if you look at um, some of the most important cabinet level agencies in our federal system, HHS, Education, uh, HUD, uh, EPA. If you look at those and look at social justice issues that can be addressed through them, I expect that this president is going to challenge his secretariat to make sure that there are new initiatives that are going to address the issues that 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 our community needs to be addressed and hold them accountable for outcome, which is something that because this president is much more cerebral and can think through issues like input and output <laughs> where George Bush never could. So uh, we're not disagreeing there. <laughs> you know, and the other thing too is <clears throat> you're absolutely right and uh, we're not seeing it. Yes. And I have been looking at ways in which to as a, as a as a citizen activist as a broadcast activist to figure out how we can do that well i think one thing we can do is and i know it's hard because i i understand uh the pent up frustration and sense of defeat that the obama presidency uh uh, apparently uh, addresses, or at least symbolically addresses. I understand that people are invested psychologically in the success of this president, black people, many of them, most of them, because we're just looking for some venue on which to be, you know, to, to, to win, mm-hmm. <laughs> because so often we lose. We're losing. Mm-hmm. So I get that people because are wrapped up in that. I get that. But, yeah, we, but we have to – I, I just want to make this point very quickly – but I think we have to find some way. You, you were asking, what can we do? We have to find some way to balance those understandable psychological needs that we feel are symbolically addressed by this president. We have to balance that against any citizens in a democracy demanding that their government address the problems associated with their community. And if we become so wedded to this president, that any attack on him is an attack on us, and consequently we can therefore not attack him when he is not being responsive, then we are shooting ourselves in the foot. And I absolutely agree with you there. Uh, I think that I am probably one of part of the group, the most vocal groups that criticize, analyze what this president is doing in a very critical in, in a very critical way way because uh he, he because that is what we are supposed to do. Yes. The other is I think that in our community and I might be wrong about this and and I, I do want to take a call. I know seven seven three has been holding on for a while. But I do want to say that I think that people 
over the two Bush administrations have been kind of paralyzed by the audacity of our government to work outside of the interests and the needs of its citizenry, and we haven't recuperated. It's like we have post-traumatic stress disorder or something. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Uh, I mean, because people really are beginning to see the damage. I mean, I heard some commentaries this week, some very important commentators say that we didn't know, we're just beginning to see how badly the economy had been tattered more than what we understood at the beginning uh, uh, or at at the beginning of the Obama administration. And I think that that is true about our social service programs. I think that that is true about our protection services in 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 this country. And I think now we're about we're we're just so traumatized by the threat of further erosion that we can't really see straight, <laughs> Doctor Hutchings. <laughs> we we can't see our way out. And later on in the program, I do want to talk to you about how so how political scientists and Dr. Ron Walters was one yeah. of my mentors uh, when I first started broadcasting back in nineteen in the nineteen eighties, and he and I worked on a number of committees and campaigns, and I was involved as a national chair of a third party trying to develop and. And and there are so many things that political scientists can help us do, and I do want to talk to you about that, but we're going to go to Chicago at 773 and take a call with Dr. Vincent Hutchings, a political scientist and researcher at the University of Michigan and Arbor. You are listening to Our Common Ground, our number Three four seven eight three eight nine eight five two, and we're talking about racial coding, priming in American politics. Seven seven three, you're on the air. I respect you, Hotep, and welcome to our common ground. Alpha, you had a great show today. Well, thank you, Janice, and good evening to you, and good evening to Dr. Hutchins. Yes, good evening. Um, I've um, I've been sitting here listening. And the first thing I want to say is it would not be about, I mean, you cannot, and I'm not saying you totally dismiss the racial aspect of the criticism of the president. I don't think it's about his policies at all, because look at most of his policies. One of their biggest drumbeats has been cap and trade. Cap and trade was written, authored, co-sponsored by Republicans. It's a Republican idea. Medicaid, I mean the uh, health care bill, was the response to the Clinton health care bill, the mandate, the, I mean, to almost verbatim. So most of his policies, and, you know, they're, they're Republican policies, and the only thing that differs from what he wanted, as opposed to immigration reform, that was a Republican bipartisan with uh, Kennedy and McCain and 
that was a Republican and a bipartisan program that many Republicans supported, and now that he's for it, they run, they run from it. When you begin to speak about, and I know you, you call it racial coding, I call it the dog whistle of racism, because for me, that is exactly what we are witnessing, the, uh, just the intransigence of the Republican Party in general. To, to shut down this man's agenda. If we are waiting for him to address the issues in the black community, we'll be waiting for a long time. Anytime he is so afraid of criticism from the people who dislike him, he's, all, he's, he's one of those, uh, please like me and we can go out and have a beer. If he can't, Take criticism, ignore it, and move with his agenda. He has fallen into this. They rolled. They rolled him five times. He's been. He's caved five times, and they know that he will cave again. They've already said with this debt ceiling deal. Yeah. When he had four trillion and some revenue on the table, and John Boehner walked. That was the time for him to bring in the 14th Amendment. Now, constitutionally, it was 50-50. It's an it's a either-or. Whether he was right or whether he was wrong, he would have shown that he would stand up to them. The mere fact that they had coupled uh, debt re- deficit reduction with the debt ceiling, which had never been done before in the history of this nation, nor had it been taken hostage. He gives them cover for what for their nefarious and insidious actions. He is so afraid that they are not going to like him when he simply should understand as a smart man that they will never like him. If you are against President Barack Obama, there is nothing he can do that is going to curry and get you and get him into your favor. Nothing. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you, and I and I appreciate your comments. Um, just very briefly, I'll I'll say I think that there is this. I mean, I think you raise an interesting point about the content of many of the policies that Obama has pushed, which are in many respects uh, kind of uh, Republican versions of legislation. This is true, for example, with his health care initiative. Um, it's a version of uh, a Republican plan, frankly. But you could have said the same thing about Bill Clinton during his administration. I mean, welfare reform wasn't exactly something that Democratic uh, liberals wanted to push. I, I say that only to make – I agree with you that issues of race probably play some role in the in the animosity that Republicans are directing at the president. I think we might differ as to the, the fraction – uh, or the the percentage of the role that it plays. I I think it's probably not as big as you think. But even if it is, even if if you're right and I'm wrong, um, I would argue that that's less important because, as you said earlier, the policies that the president is putting forward are for the most part Republican policies, uh, or at least many of them are, and they're not designed to address the core problems of the black community or of working class and poor communities more broadly. That's Far more important to me than whether or not Obama is insulted, whether or not people are disrespectful to him. Because, again, when he leaves office either after one or two terms, 
He and his family will be fine. They are financially set for life. I am not worried about Barack Obama. I'm worried about the vast majority of black people who are not set for life. That's what I'm concerned about. That's what I would like to focus on. Well, I think, you're well, right. I think that Alpha also, and Alpha is going to end his, his um, Alpha is one of our um, um, a host of the Alpha show, which broadcast on Saturdays on our TruthWorks network. And he's going to end it by saying, and I am a supporter of this president. Well, that's what I always say. Those are my words. That's after he throws the cement block. Yeah, well, but like Dr. Hutchins said, you know, this is not about being a Obama groupie. I can, you know, I, I there are quite a few female singers that I could be groupies to, you know, pull my lips off their butt any day. But when you get right down to it, if you believe that somehow, well, we all, that's a given, that he's going to be all right. He's going to be all right, and his family's going to be all right. But this sets the tone. This sets the stage when, not like the stage is not already set, and they're dancing, you know, in the background. But this further, uh, I guess, cements the, the, the racial aspect of it, that even with a with a black president, we give him no respect, nor do we have to respect those in our culture, those in our country that are of color. And that's what I think is the biggest danger of all of this. Dr. Hutchins, thank you very much. Janice Graham, I won't allow you to kick me out. I'll leave. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, sir. Alpha, thank you so very much for your very insightful, as always, uh, presentation of the issues and questions, and thank you for joining us tonight. You can moderate the chat room before Shaka Zulu takes over. Thank you all for being with us here tonight. We're talking with our guest, who is Dr. Vincent Hutchings. He is a professor of political science at the University of Michigan, Ann Harbor, and a research professor at the Institute for Social Research. You can Join in on this conversation by using our call-in line, 347-838-9852. Dr. Hutchins, before we go uh, into our break, uh, and you can have an ice-cold glass of water and refresh yourself for the the next segment, I want to ask you, how did you get involved in a career of uh, of political science and political science research? Oh, good question. I guess um, I'm actually from California originally, and that's relevant uh, because I I guess I came of age uh, with the gubernatorial campaign of Tom Bradley in in 1982. I wasn't old enough Uh to vote. But uh, for your listeners who may not recall, Bradley was the first black mayor of Los Angeles, and he ran for governor in California, and and many of the polls predicted that he would win. He was leading, uh, but he ultimately lost the gubernatorial contest, uh, which was really disheartening for me (laughs) because we thought he was going to win. And that coupled with the the candidacy for mayor of Harold Washington in Chicago and then later the Jesse Jackson campaign for president, or at least for the Democratic nomination in 84, those all occurred uh, pretty much back-to-back. 
so to speak, and they yes, they did. Mm-hmm. They kind of ushered in my interest in this subject. Well, it certainly um, um, are the is the stuff <laughs> that call, calls up young people uh, to become involved in looking at the political process, either being a participant or becoming a civic activist. And one of the things that we advocate here highly is that we begin to train. I, I'm one of the proponents for citizen school. Mm-hmm. I think that every black community that is healthy ought to have a citizen school. That is teaching young people what these processes are all about, teaching them how they can become politically, what happens in the political process, the history of our participation, both of the civil rights movement, the black power movement, the black nationalist movement, that our children have to know these things in order order to have interests. I happen to have gotten highly involved in the first Jesse Jackson uh, campaign um, and met, uh, as a part of that, so many of the people who are important parts of 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 my life now, Dr. Ron Daniels and and Dr. Ron Walters and um, certainly Reverend Jesse Jackson and uh, and and begin to look at media as a way of implementing um, local and community um, political participation. Mm-hmm. which is why we call our common ground alternative activist empowerment talk radio. You're listening to our common ground. I'm Janice Graham and I'll be listening for you at 347-838-9852. Our guest tonight, Dr. Vincent Hutchins, and I'm so glad to meet you. Yeah. Um it's I been was my pleasure. trying to um I read an article where you had uh, been quoted and uh, commented, and I said, gee, wow, uh, this man is doing really good research stuff. Let me tell you a little about the research that Dr. Hutchins has been involved in uh, among his uh, publication, and something that I think that all of you, if you're really serious, should read is Cues That Matter, How Political Ads Prime racial attitudes during campaigns. It is one of it, it is a very good look, uh, a very good teaching tool for if you're going to have citizen schools. It's uh, the stuff that you ought to put in your citizen schools, and <clears throat> perceptions of racial group competition extending the Bloomer's theory of group position to a multiracial social context, which was published in 1961. Was it 1961? That's too that's no, too early. 72. 96. 96. Okay. In the American Sociological Review. So his publications have 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 appeared in some very very important um uh publications that most people generally don't get to read like the American Sociological Review and the Legislative Studies Quarterly. But if you are going to be a serious student of politics, one of the things that you do have to do 
is be prepared to understand what is being said and what is happening. Thank you again for being with us. If you'd like to join our chatters at Our Common Ground, you can come to blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Vincent Hutchings. Matrix is a system, Neil. That system is our enemy. When you're inside, you look around, what do you see? Businessmen, teachers, lawyers, carpenters, the very minds of the people we are trying to save. But until we do, these people are still a part of that system, and that makes them our enemy. You have to understand, most of these people are not ready to be unplugged. And many of them are so inert, so hopelessly dependent on the system, that they will fight to protect it. Were you listening to me, Neo? Or were you looking at the woman in the red dress? I was... Look again. Actually, I was listening to Our Common Ground. The woman in the red dress, she's Janice Graham. You're listening to Our Common Ground. Network, nightly call-in talk radio. It's the Black Voice Collaborative, right here on Blog Talk Radio. TruthWorks Network, Monday, Power Views, Reloading the Truth, the best of broadcast interviews in and around black media across the Internet. Wednesdays, Architects of Change with Elvin Dowling and Friends. Change, Motivation, and Inspiration, 9 p.m. Wednesday evenings. Architects of Change with Elvin Dowling and Friends. Saturday. Just damn political pushback with the master daddy of all political thought. The Alpha Show with Alpha. 3 p.m. on TruthWorks Network. The truth must be spoken more than once. I think the main overarching question we sought to answer, my colleagues Nick Valentino and Ishmael White with the Cues That Matters paper, was what role do racial appeals play in contemporary American politics? Now we wrote the paper uh, in the latter part of the 90s and actually, well, into the uh, early part of the 21st century, 
And given that that's some 30, 40 years after the conclusion of the Civil Rights Movement, many or at least some commentators thought that race really didn't figure into American politics anymore. We were not altogether sure that was true. But like good social scientists, we didn't want to impose our conclusion uh, on our results. We wanted to generate a, a test that would allow us to determine with some degree of conclusiveness whether or not politicians uh, making racial appeals might still be successful. So in short, what we did is we, we actually made our own political commercials, which is great. We, we wanted to run an experiment, and the virtue of an experiment is that you can make strong causal claims. So we developed a series of political commercials where we only changed one thing. That is to say, the voiceover, the narration was the same, the candidate was the same, most of the images were the same. But uh, some of the images were different. And what we would do is that in strategic places, we would insert images of African Americans consistent with political rhetoric confirming traditional racial stereotypes, like uh, uh, African Americans are less likely to be uh, adhered to the work ethic, or wasteful government programs are often directed at African Americans. All of this may be meaningless in the post-civil rights era, and indeed many commentators suggested that it was. But if we designed our experiment appropriately, we would be in a position to determine if that were true. And long story short, uh, it turns out it's not so true. That is to say, by juxtaposing images of African Americans with negative commentary about government, we can provoke and activate people's racial attitudes. It's a very subtle process, but very effective. And ha having demonstrated it with an experimental design, we're actually fairly confident that it's a real effect. Jesse Jackson's campaign uh, in 19, 
oh, we won't even talk about it. <laughs> no, that's incredible. That's great. Let's go to our phones, 865. You've been holding on for a while. Thank you for joining us with Dr. Vincent Hutchings at Our Common Ground. I respect you. 865. Did I lose you? I see you still on my board. Did you go away to get a glass of iced tea and never come back? Well, we're going to put you on hold and see if you'll come back on here. Our number is 347-838-9852 to get involved in this discussion. Dr. Hetchins, one of the things that um, I'm particularly interested in having you addressed um, is your interest in campaign uh, communications uh, and how it affects a candidate's evaluation. Um, I know you did a study that examined how campaign communications can prime voter racial attitudes. What do you think we will see in the 2012 election since it seems that the racial tension in political discourse, I mean, you know, from Joe Wilson, you lie, (laughs) to last week somebody was talking about a tar baby and um, somebody, and, 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 you know, Sometimes you want to dismiss people like Pat Buchanan, but Pat Pat Buchanan, I heard it with my own ears. I was sitting here, and I kind of like went, oh, my Lord, a mercy. (laughs) Pat Buchanan said twice to Reverend Al Sharpton on Reverend Al Sharpton's new show on MSNBC, he called the President of the United States of America Yo, boy. Twice. Not once, twice. So what do you see we're going to have to be on the lookout for? If you were were managing the communication strategy for the other side in 2012, what kinds of things would you be implicating in terms of trying to push the racial coding board? Well, I think, um, I mean, uh, in some respects, when when I worked on this issue earlier with my colleagues uh, Nick Valentino and, and Ishmael White, we were working in an environment where presidential candidates were always, or at least those who got the nomination were always white. But obviously now we have a, a black president, and uh, I say that to say that you almost don't, you don't need any expert advice, right? I mean, the voters are already going to know, um, you know, they're already going to know um, the racial implications of their vote because there'll be a black person running against a white person uh, in all likelihood. Uh-huh. So I uh-huh. think, um, I don't know what the Republicans need to do, but I do want to say one thing, Janice. I think it's easy to get the impression from the work I've done and maybe from some of the work that others have done that only Republicans engage in, in this kind of these subtle and indirect efforts to try to, you know, activate or prime people's racial attitudes, try to make them bring their racial attitudes to bear on their or their voting decisions. But Democrats do this as well. 
they oh absolutely yes I, and I wanted to be upfront about that and I want to be even more explicit I I, uh, I think that in the 2008 presidential cycle presidential campaign cycle mm-hmm. that let's talk about Hillary Clinton Hillary Clinton did in fact engage in this but here's something that people don't hear so often so too did Barack Obama. That's right, Barack Obama. He is yeah, no he more did. he is no more immune from this than any other candidate. Yeah. Now, when Republicans yeah. engage in racial priming, they're mostly trying to remind voters, white voters, that their opponent uh, either is aligned with blacks or will likely pursue policies designed to benefit blacks. Uh, they make some subtle, indirect effort to do that. Well, what do Democrats do? Well, they don't do that because obviously you can't say that about their Republican opponents. What Democrats try, unless, of course, it's in the primary context with uh, Hillary Clinton, what Democrats try to do is they try to say to white voters, uh, I know you may think that my party is is aligned with these black people, but it's really not true. So Bill Clinton goes back to Arkansas to preside over the execution of a black uh, and mentally retarded convict, and obviously Mm -hmm. the whole Sister Soldier episode. That was designed to tell white voters, hey, we're not in the pocket of blacks. And Barack Obama engaged in similar kinds of symbolism with his praising of Ronald Reagan in the 2008 campaign cycle. I'm sure we haven't forgotten that. Mm-hmm. Maybe we no. have. And uh, Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> the yeah. Abraham Lincoln thing freaked me out. <laughs> but also the very those comments he made during Father's Day uh, back during the campaign uh, where he castigated black fathers that was all designed to send a message to white voters and indeed his campaign commercials in a range of other ways so i'm not criticizing obama here in particular but i want to make it clear that he is not immune hillary clinton mm-hmm. deserves mm-hmm. criticism the republican party many candidates in that party deserve criticism but so too do bill and hillary and barack obama i think that when we identify a troubling strategy that candidates use we shouldn't just uh, be upset when one side uses those strategies. We should be upset when everyone uses those strategies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're you're absolutely right. But one of the things that I thought about, uh, Reverend Jeremiah Wright is one of the people in the world um, that I love dearly. And when Barack Obama dismissed his long-term relationship with um it was with with Reverend Wright. It was it was politically expedient, yes. but for many, it was very much uh, a symbol of how much he was willing to try to discolor himself. <laughs> uh, and um, then you began to see some of of the other things. And I do. I I, I mean, I am one of the people that really resent that he wants to talk about personal responsibility to black people. Yes. And not talk about personal responsibility uh to others. Let's go to our phones. I think that w- those were very salient points. 972, you're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call. 972, you're on the air. Good evening, Janice and Dr. Hutchings. How are we tonight? Very good. Well, Sarah, good to hear from you from Texas. How's Rick Perry? No, not Rick Perry. That's the wrong Perry. Do Dumb you want to make me sick now? 
<laughs> I just reside here. I have nothing to do with anything that goes on here in Texas. <laughs> but um, I have to commend the doctor because I was taking copious notes while he was rattling off the things, and it is quite true what he is saying about these politicians and Barack Obama and especially. Let's go back to his campaign because I happened to be in Chicago for a conference, a training session, when he announced his run for presidency back in February of 2007. So you were in Springfield? No, no, no. I was in Chicago. I was um, I was down by Navy Pier because um, that's where we were having a training session down there. And I happened to put on the TV, and I heard when he was making his announcement. What I found very troubling about that, which he did just like what Ronald Reagan did when he went to Philadelphia, Mississippi, to announce his run to send out his coded message, he went to Springfield, Illinois. You for, don't know. Let's forget about the, the race riot that it had yeah. in that area. Yeah. That was the culmination for the start of the NAACP um, getting started because of what happened down there. So he has played, he from day one, he played into the game of setting up his campaign, putting it in a, in a place where white people, because of Lincoln's connection um, with his affiliation with, with Abe Lincoln, and Lincoln being in Springfield and doing all of these things, but yet still the message was there about the race riot that was started in there in um, Springfield, Illinois. Then I'm looking around here, and I'm hearing all of these rah-rah moments of these so-called black politicians, which you have n- I have not heard a word from them. They have not said anything. They have all been sitting on their hands as well as on their lips, and they have not mentioned, made a word or said anything. And my beef that I have is that whenever you are not funded by your constituents, Whenever you have to go to corporations and other places and businesses to fund your campaign to um, go into office, you're automatically, we the constituents, we've already lost because we haven't even made it to the ballot box yet, but we are lost. And we have been stuck on stupid with this mess about voting, 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 when it has always been economics, economics, economics. We can vote until we vote our tails off. It is not going to change anything because... We don't fund these people. These people only need us to go to the polls in order to legitimately put them there because the corporation can't do it. The corporation can't pick them up and put them into D.C. They have to get us to come to the polls and select the on the lever, punch the numbers, get them where they need to be. That's all they need us for because they don't listen to their constituents for anything. They don't come back to you except when it's time for re-election, then they come around. We, we have to look at this like this, and I don't know, um, the doctor, I don't know if you're a political scientist. We have the he most, he, oh, he is a political scientist? Yes. Yes, at the University of Michigan. Okay, I, I did not know if you were in sociology or political science, because so, I didn't catch the show from the very beginning. So, uh, But w- what I was going to say is this. We have the most black elected, of, elected officials at any given time in the history of these United States. And black people are in the worst conditions that we have ever been in since Reconstruction. Uh, we need to ask ourselves, why is it this? We always like to say, oh, we got the black police chief, we got the black fire chief, the black mayor, and yet still our community are in the worst shambles it has ever been. What's the use of having these black first and the black this? Because they're upholding white supremacy. 
That's what they're there for. They are not there doing anything for you. They run back to the Chamber of Commerce, the Rotary Club, and all of the business communities. That's who they answer to. They don't answer to you. So I get tired of people always saying, okay, well, we have this black this or we have this black that, and I'm looking around and I don't see prosperity. I see we're sliding fast back into Reconstruction, and the only thing is there are no more plantations except the prison plantation left. Let's ask uh, Dr. Hutchins of his assessment uh, of your your comments. Well, okay. I, th- I think <clears throat> excuse me. I think the caller raises some good points. I mean, um, I think too often uh, our community is simply satisfied to have a black person in the mayor's office or in the police chief's office or in the presidency, and they forget that politicians are just means to ends. It's uh, you can have so so just to give a very good example, hopefully a stark example. Uh, we shouldn't celebrate when Clarence Thomas gets confirmed to the Supreme Court. He's black, but we should be concerned about the kinds of decisions that Clarence Thomas uh, decides, right? So the point here is that it's not about the race of the person in the office, or at least it's not only about that, but it should also be about the product, about what they do in office. And as the caller, I think, appropriately pointed out, uh, African-Americans, uh, and by the way, not just African-Americans, but certainly most especially African-Americans, are suffering through the worst economy in at least 70 years, at least 70 years. So I'm not quite sure why we should be celebrating uh, who happens to be in the White House or who happens to be in the Senate or who happens to be in the gubernatorial um, or in the governor's office uh, if they're not solving the problem. The the problem is that African-Americans are disproportionately um, unemployed, disproportionately underpaid, disproportionately uh, in prison, and I could go on and on and on. Uh, It would be nice if someone actually did something about it, particularly people who look for our votes at election time. We give candidates, Democratic candidates, um, of just about any shade, uh, upwards of 90% of our votes, what are we getting in return? Absolutely nothing, which is, which is what I've been telling, trying to tell these people over and over again. We get absolutely nothing. These people treat us like the mistress. We are the mistress in this relationship, and all they need to come and visit you is on the cover of darkness. They don't want to be seen with you during the daylight in public because their wife might see and go back and tell, or somebody might <laughs> Tell the wife. So they're going to sneak in the door around 9, 10 o'clock at night when nobody is looking, and then they're going to sneak out just before sunrise. That's how we get and treated. Call, and call when it's only convenient. Correct. I Correct. agree. I love that metaphor. By call. And we need to get tired of being treated as the backdoor mistress. We need to get fed up with it because this president lives in, right in Washington, D.C. Has he, He's always going to middle America, Ohio, Idaho and all of these places and talking to the white constituency out there. Don't forget he only got 43% of white votes. That's right. 54% of them still voted for McCain-Palin. He has not made at all an issue in Chicago, his hometown. He, he went back there for 35,000, um, 35.8 um, thousand a plate fundraiser for his birthday. Now we already know that who is he, who, who he's talking to when you can fly back for a couple hours on, ta- on a taxpayer's dime to go in there for a, fund, for a fundraiser. D.C. is right there with, a, with some of the highest unemployment for black people. I haven't seen him going out there and said anything about the D.C. community. 
New well, York Caller, City. I, you, I, you and I are on the same page, but let me just put it, uh, build on your comments and say, why doesn't the president or Democrats more generally make such an effort to appeal to black voters? Because they don't have to. Because black people are going to vote for them anyway, no matter what they do. And that's especially true in the case of Barack Obama. So can you imagine just how dangerous that is? A politician who feels no need to be responsive to the very community that helped put him in office. Because any slight, any perceived insult to that candidate is somehow taken as an insult to the entire race. whole community. And so therefore we are more on guard to any uh, presumed... uh, um, insult to Barack Obama than we are about the unemployment rate in the black community and the incarceration mm-hmm. rate. That is mm-hmm. great for Barack Obama and the Democrats, but that's not so great for black voters. And one of our callers, off, many months. I, I, I agree with you 100%, Janice, and to Dr. Hutchings. Uh, what I've been telling people is this. I said, you know what you have done? You have put yourself into a corner because the next white president, and there will be plenty of other next white presidents before there be another colored or black one up in there. When you, when you come up to him and ask him to do what you didn't want to ask this black one to do, and he kicked you out of his office and said, why didn't you ask him when you had a black one in there to do it, and he, and he turned his back on you and ignored the hell out of you, don't say you, you are not warned. Because you had ample, ample opportunity to let the Al Sharptons and all these other watchdogs keep you away from the door while Al Sharpton is in and out the damn White House, you know, having functions or whatever else, and he ain't, doing, he, he ain't no longer worried about grassroots and doing anything for people. He worried about building up his portfolio of contacts. Yep. Amen. Well, you, you, you see, one of the things that we have to begin to do is we have to begin a campaign and organize that profoundly speaks to what you just said, Sarah, and what Dr. Hutchins is saying, and that is we will not be silent. We have to, I mean, if we are to be categorized or characterized as the backdoor mistress, we need to make a call to the wife. (laughs) And the wife is the Democratic National Committee. You see what I'm saying? That is quite true. Because, yeah. look, they give it to Washington Schultz, got the position to set it down in Brazil. We can do all the dirty work, fetch all the buckets, take all the slop jars out, but when it comes time for leadership or management, we always get overlooked for it. We could warn the chair up, say but this, we can't do it. Let me just say this uh, in somewhat of a defense of Reverend Al Sharpton. I think over the last three weeks that he has been at MSNBC, that there has been more focus on the issues relevant to poor people and to grassroots people than ever before, as much as all of you call up here and telling me what Rachel said and what Keith said and what Ed said and what Lawrence said. Lawrence O'Donnell has been around 100 years. Ed Schultz has been around 100 years. Rachel Maddow has been around 100 years. And none of them speak to the critical issues in America, which are, as Dr. Hutchins has pointed out, are African Americans and Native Americans. None of them. They were afraid. When Rachel Maddow had the highest rating she ever had the night she talked about race, 
when she talked about they are coming for you and that kind of attitude, that is when she began to understand the role that race plays in this political landscape. So we need to keep that in mind. I mean, I, I, you know, I have a lot of criticism for Reverend Sharpton and his position with this administration and the way in which he acts as a barrier for the president. That's what he is. But at the same, he is also a gatekeeper. But at the same time, I do appreciate what he has been able to accomplish on national TV because even my mother, Rachel, my I mean Sarah, my mother, who always says to me, do not come in here with all of that political talk. <laughs> even my mother has been watching MSNBC. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not saying um, I don't. I personally, I, I have never, I have not watched it. I have not watched any television. It's been almost two months. I have weaned myself completely off of it, and I've been keeping informed by getting my news from alternative sources off the internet. Because from what I've seen with Al Sharpton, and if you go back and you follow the money, the money trail with him, Kathy Hughes, Radio One, Comcast, and the, um, being part ownership of that deal and everything else you would see why he's in that position where he's in right now instead oh, of a yeah. qualified we, we journalist. All, we, all, we, all, we all understand it. We understand how it happened. But at the same time, you are unique, and we have to understand how unique you are. And that is that we have got to have a community of people who are in tune with and have a semblance of understanding of the issues and events that occur around them that are relevant to their lives. Because people only engage when they understand those issues which affect where they eat, what they eat, and where they sleep. I agree with you 100%, Janet. We have to do better as a people because what I'm seeing is that we are setting ourselves up for genocide. That's what we have done. We have, in essence, set ourselves up to be Genocide, because all this demonization that you're seeing on television now with the young men, every time we see a black person, it's either they're in handcuffs, they're committing, accused of a crime, their pants is falling off their behind, the vulgarity, the most diseases, the most out of wedlock, everything negative you hear coming towards black people. So this is setting you up to be demonized, so when it is time for these police to start shooting you down like dogs in the street, even some of us would say, you know what, they deserve to be gone because they were of no use. Well, we're going to um, have um, uh, Lauren back from Crew, uh, 40, Crew42.com to report to us uh, what this uh, black caucus and how they're reorganizing. I, I don't even know how to say it, Sarah. Sarah, thank you for your call. You're so welcome, uh, Dr. Hutchins and um, Janice. Thanks again. Fantastic show. Thank you. Thank you. But you see, Vincent, this is the kind of thing, this is the kind of dialogue that people are not having at the local level. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that people are getting lost in all of this. And I think that as an injured people, as a people that historically has experience that has brought them to this place in post-traumatic stress disorder, personality disorders, addiction disorders, all kinds of social evils that have leaked into our community that we have this man 
and we're ignoring all the other things that are going on around him. People are saying, I mean, people, I mean, I I have had invitations on Facebook, people telling me, if you got to criticize the president, please remove yourself from my Facebook. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Yeah, it's really, it's actually Um, sad is what it is. Yeah, it really is. And the thing is that as, People learn who these characters are, the John Boehners of the world, the McConnells of the world, um, and they understand the role that it plays. You know, it was really interesting how people are now talking about standards and poors and Moody's uh, credit, and they understand what, what the function. Four weeks ago, the same people knew nothing about it. Let's go to our phones. 865 is back. I see you're on the air with Dr. Vincent Hutchings. Thank you for your call. I respect you. 865. Okay, you're done. (laughs) 773. Um, You're on the air. 773, you're up. I respect you. Thank you for your call. I'm wondering if something is going on with this board. Uh, Dr. Hutchings, give us your reading of what the most important public policy issues that our community needs to be addressing and who in the political process are the appropriate people to approach? Well, it's it's hard to, to identify a specific matter. I guess more generally, uh, I would just point to this issue of inequality. Inequality with respect to income, inequality with respect to race. It has been uh, either growing or remaining uh, intolerably large for decades now, and it's maybe the most uh, underreported story of the well of, the, of our times. That's what we need to do something about. And let me just say something else. Going back a bit, I think uh, maybe the first caller made a comment about Obama having uh, caved or something to the uh, negotiations with the Republicans uh, under the debt ceiling uh, issue. I just wanted to. to put forth another interpretation of what happened with that scenario. I think that it wasn't so much that Obama was somehow out-negotiated. I think at the end of the day, what some people have difficulty coming to grasp with is that the president, for the most part, got what he wanted. The president indicated uh, very shortly after he was inaugurated, indeed, I think before he was inaugurated, that he wanted to uh, go after and put on the table entitlements. It wasn't and the deal that was walked away from by John Boehner at some point during the negotiations when they, the $4 trillion was on the table, uh-huh. uh, that was something that Obama put on the table along with cuts to Social Security and Medicare. It wasn't something that the Republicans put on the table. So right. I say all that to say that um, it isn't simply that we have a an administration that isn't sufficiently active in looking out for the little guy, as it were. But we have an administration that is actively undermining the little guy. It's actively undermining the little guy even as we celebrate 
that administration because of the pigment of skin of the occupant of the White House. So it is a very, very sinister situation. What is it that we can do as a community? Well, for one thing, we need to become informed. You mentioned, Janice, uh, that people in your Facebook community, you know, say that if you're going to criticize the president, then, you know, defriend me or something to that effect. We, we, And that kind of comment is born out of prioritizing uh, the president over uh, the African-American community. If we have to make a choice about one or the other, it should be about the community, again, because Obama is fine. He will be fine no matter what happens. His family will be fine. We should be concerned about the most vulnerable, the most disadvantaged, not about millionaires who are on TV all the time. Those are not the people we should be concerned about. Um, and I, I'm not so much laying out an agenda for what to do as I am trying to highlight what not to do. Mm-hmm. And what not mm-hmm. to do is to put your faith in people who are actively undermining you. You should not put your faith and your support in people who are actively undermining you. That is counterproductive. It is self-destructive. Okay. So let's talk, for instance, about uh, what seems to be the increase in prison population by young black men. Yes. Uh, A critical, critical, um, (coughs) excuse me, a, a critical, critical issue that people talk about. They they say these 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 terms: prison, industrial complex, and a blah blah blah. And it's just speeches, and nobody does anything about it. Yes. Well, clearly, uh, part of the reason that so many black men, in particular, or and increasingly black women as well, but but particularly black men, are you know going uh, in and out of the prison system is that they're they it, they don't have anything else to do right i mean the unemployment rates for this group is like 40% um you know we we have segregated communities we have underemployed and unemployed communities uh we have just a range of structural problems i i brought this up earlier in the discussion this this uh this evening about the differences between structural racism uh, institutional racism is i think uh focusing so much on the latter, individual racism, not whether or not it's with respect to the president or uh, any other individual you might identify, and we're losing sight of the far, far more damaging uh, structural racism, institutional racism, which results in a population of roughly, in this nation, 40-some-odd percent of the prison population is black, even though the country is only 13 percent black. Uh, why is that the case? I mean, this country imprisons more people than any other country in the world. The land of the free. Uh, there is no outcry about this. There is no effort to try to address it. We need to put this on the front burner, not on the back mm-hmm. burner. Back burner, uh-huh. And the other is that it also speaks to the issue of the increasing uh, corporate takeover of our government and our franchise as citizens um, because many of these prisons are being built and maintained and managed by private enterprise. True. 
And that means that um, it's for profit. Let's go to our phones. We've got 312 on the air. You're on the air with Dr. Vincent Hutchings. Hello? 312, you're on the air. I respect you. Hey, Janice. This is Alan Ramadan Kareem. Oh, well, I hope you're having a joyous Ramadan. Thank you for joining us, House. Thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Hutchinson, it's a pleasure talking to you. Yes. I've um, been listening to your show for about an hour, and um, you guys have uh, hidden on a bunch of points. Um, Janice, you mentioned uh, Reverend Wright when you were talking about um, uh, different people, um, kind of the president has gone after the way he distanced himself from Reverend Wright, um, basically to prove a point, to say, to let you know, white folks know that, you know, I'm not all that radical, I'm not all that pro-black. He also did that to Farrakhan. Um, he did it to Van Jones. And I'm forgetting the woman's name in Georgia, the agricultural. Oh, yes. that's I can't recall her name, too, but I think this is the incident where the... Uh, you mean Shirley Sherrod? Yes. Shirley Sherrod, right. Yeah. Did that to her, too. That um, was his so, secretary yeah. who should have been fired. He should have been asked to leave. Mm-hmm. And, but, and um, not not because it was a it's so much of a racial incident as it was just bad management and the way in which a federal employee was treated should not have been tolerated. And her immediate superior and the and the secretary should have been asked to leave. This man does oh. not want to be a hero. He doesn't know what's going to make him great. Yeah. But well, also, go ahead. He fought, he, Don't get me started. He, he um he did fire um one of his planners. I forgot her name. She's with the uh, 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 Johnson Publishing now, I believe. I'm forgetting. Oh, that her was, name. He, she was the secretary, White House secretary, uh, right. Desiree Rogers. Desiree Rogers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh, because the, because of the security breach at the, when the prime minister of india uh mm-hmm. was in 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 town and there was a big um dinner at the white house mhm now i've heard of other people in his administration uh non black had the opportunity of leaving um but they don't leave under they don't get fired they don't get ushered mm-hmm. out mm-hmm. And um, Van Jones' house is a very good example because Van, the, the work that Van Jones was doing was a cornerstone of the agenda from which he campaigned. Mm-hmm. But it's also, ironically, uh, an agenda that he's gone 180 degrees from and how Alpha was speaking earlier and how I brought up a lot that these are Republican agendas that he's pushing. And Van Jones was probably diametrically opposed to a lot of the stuff that he's, the path that he's going now. Um, Republicans are all about privatization. And I don't see any policy change from President Obama that's going to maneuver away from that, Um, the whole tax policy. Um, As black folks, we we talk about policy, which is very interesting to me, Um, black Democrats, but I, I hear the libertarians in the Republican Party talk about policy in terms of how they want to go back to states' rights, um, how they want to keep the tax policy as it is, and more privatization and everything that they're always for. But we, I hear Democrats, excuse me, liberal Democrats, and sometimes even so-called progressives 
they are so much into defending their position against this new libertarian voice that they don't talk about policy. It's all about, you know, well, Bush did it first. And, um, you know, I, I don't hear them talking about policy, but when I, you know, hear your show and some a few other shows, uh, people that are in the know and are willing to talk about policy will talk about policy and a, a bad policy effects, um, mm-hmm. which is a, is a good thing. But I did want to mm-hmm. ask the uh, doctor um, about the um, how was the Standard & Poor's uh, dropped the credit rating. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so how, how do you think that is, can, or will be spun racially? Other than the obvious, you know, we had the first black president, and so now we got bad credit. How do you think? <laughs> well, um, I mean, again, as I've tried to argue throughout this program, I, 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 I'm less concerned with trying to understand whether or not criticisms about Obama are racially motivated or not. I, I mm-hmm. take it as a given that some are and that many probably are not, but because I think that's not the right question. Nevertheless, you asked it, so I'll try to answer me. I think that... Um, I, I think that certainly the president's political opponents, this will be true of any president, of course, are going to try mm-hmm. to uh, lay at his doorstep this, this negative outcome. I mean, that's just the nature of politics. There's nothing – you want – you know, an opposition party is supposed to blame all bad things on the, uh, you know, the current administration. That's what they're supposed to do. That's, that's why we have a democracy. So there's nothing – I don't find anything illegitimate about that. Now, mm-hmm. is it – that's partisan and that's politics. Is it racial? Well, it, there may be a racial component to it, but I, I, because if the president were white, I think it would still occur. That is to say, if we lost our credit rating or had it degraded in the way that it was, uh, and say Hillary Clinton were the president, or Bill Clinton for that matter, the Republicans would obviously criticize them. That's what they're supposed to do. And frankly, if Bush were in the White House still and this occurred, the Democrats would criticize him. Hmm. Um, so I guess a question related to that would be the statement. I've heard the statement a few times that they put out as to why they lowered the rating. And it could be construed as that there wasn't an element of revenue. So and the president supposedly is for revenue. Uh, he was for revenue before, and then he signed the Obama tax extension of the Bush tax policy, and now he's against you know, not raising the taxes. So can he, he use that as a tactic now <clears throat> to actually go back and say, well, we absolutely uh, have to have more revenue, um, which you refused to do in this last debt negotiation, and use that as a tactic to drive it home and, and make them, put them on the defensive for not wanting to raise revenue. Is that is that even within him now? I'm, I'm not even sure he has that in him. Well, I don't think it's again. I don't think I don't think Obama is being out negotiated by the Republicans. See, there's a premise involved that I don't accept. He's not being out negotiated by the Republicans. He's getting, for the most part, what he wants. He has indicated publicly on more than one occasion that he wants to quote unquote reform entitlements. That's not John Boehner. That's Barack Obama. Has he's saying this? That's true. Uh, he has not really sought. You know, Obama has basically said that the Bush tax cuts are in part responsible for the deficit, but Obama does not want the Bush tax cuts to lapse. He only wants them to last uh, lapse for people who make over two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. That's a, that's not the vast majority 
of the people in this country, obviously, and it doesn't represent right. the vast majority of the of the hit that the Treasury takes by extending mm-hmm. those tax uh, uh, breaks, which this the Democrats and the Republicans agree that the Bush tax cuts should remain. Uh, they only disagree about whether they should remain for people who make over $250,000 a year. That's true. That's true. I, I agree with that. And the, um, the the big tax cut that he gave when he got in, um, that actually helped take money out of the Treasury. Yep. Um, and I remember getting that, looking at my paycheck, and it was like, you know, I had another $8. <laughs> yeah. and, for most and, Americans, and it, it doesn't amount to much. Exactly. But cumulatively – it's really, really big, yes. um, and it just it just hurts the Treasury going forward. So I, I can agree with that. Um, but one more quick question about the um, the debt ceiling debate and how the Progressive Party came out and voted against it. What, what was your uh, views about that? Oh, the Progressive Caucus in the House, you mean? Yes, I'm sorry, Progressive Caucus, yeah. Yeah, I believe that the vast majority of the Progressive Caucus voted against it, which is good. And, and by the way, apparently most of the Congressional Black Caucus did as well. Right. Um, that's great that they did that, you know. But uh, I'm I'm more interested in winning the war than I am in winning uh, the occasional battle. And so mm-hmm. the issue for us is that uh, as a consequence of the policies pursued by the Republicans, the previous Republican president, the Republicans mm-hmm. in Congress, and the Democrat in the White House, because of a consequence as a consequence of those policies. Uh, social welfare programs designed to make life a little bit more tolerable for the poor are going to be eviscerated. And I do not find that acceptable at all. So do you think that the caucus voting against them, you think is going to have actually an impact on uh, what the president may do going forward or even the, the, the council of 12 or whatever they call it? The, yeah, the super committee. I think that the Democrats in general, this would be true for anyone, uh, any mainstream Democrat in the in the White House or vying for the White House. They the same reason why they ignore black voters is the same reason they ignore progressive and and uh, you know liberal voters is because from their vantage point, these voters have nowhere to go, so they yeah. feel no they feel no obligation to be responsive to them. Why is why is this president and the last Democratic uh, president before him, making such an effort to reach out to Republicans and independents? Well, because they want their votes, because they don't have them, because they're not guaranteed. And why aren't they reaching out to black voters and to progressive voters? Because they're already in the bag. They don't have to do anything to get their support, nor will they do anything to get their support. So why not with the election results of the midterms in 2010, how come that didn't shock them back to pay more attention to the left, that they saying that the left stayed home, and that's why the Republicans can, excuse me, Republicans took control of the House. Yeah, the, the lesson they took from 2010 was not, oh my God, let's mobilize the left and give them more of what they want to make sure they come out in 2012. The lesson they took from 2010, from the midterm, was, oh my God, we we need to vie to the center. That's Washington right. speak for it, become more conservative. Yeah, uh, and you know, yeah. yeah, so that's. That's the message they take. So you might say, why aren't they trying to buy, you know, try to recruit those people on the left, African Americans and others? Because again, they don't have to. Because there is, they don't have to provide any policy, uh, um, any kind of policy gains to this constituency, because the constituency is so invested in the symbolism of this president that they're simply happy to be in his presence. Mm, yeah, yeah. I, I, I can't argue that. 
How's we've got to go, but thank you for your call. Have a joyous Ramadan, a very peaceful one. Peace you. Uh, to you and your family. And I'll, and we um, really appreciate your, your call, uh, your questions, and your comments. Thank you so much. Uh, this is very complex. It's very complex. Dr. Vincent Hutchings, I want to talk to you about one thing before you go, before we all have to go. Sure. And that is uh, your recently published book, Public Opinion and Democratic Accountability, How Citizens Learn About Politics. Yes. Well, so uh, the book, I guess the main focus of the book was to, there's a there's a literature that says that people aren't usually very informed about politics, uh, which is mostly mm-hmm. true. That's not because you and I are smarter than everyone else, but, you know, people have to worry about picking up their kids from daycare and uh, going to work every day and putting food on the table. We can't expect them to be glued to C-SPAN and to learn all the pecul- you know, all the nuances of Washington. That's asking too much. You and I do it because we get paid to do it and we enjoy it, but other people have other things to do. So uh, in light of the fact that people aren't informed about politics, but a democracy requires information in order to cast a, you know, a relevant vote, uh, you know, how do we bridge this gap? So the argument of my book is that it's an important the the important kind of medi- uh, mediating role is played by leaders and by candidates and by interest group um interest groups and interest group leaders <clears throat> excuse me and by that i mean that in order to inform people about when their interests are implicated in an election contest they need candidates to to highlight those issues they need interest groups to highlight those issues they need the media to highlight those issues. When that is done, people who are maybe traditionally uninformed about politics can become swiftly informed about their interests. So people don't know a lot about politics, Janice, but they can learn very quickly when their interests are implicated if the leadership in this country is doing its job. And by the leadership, again, I mean elites, interest groups, activists, candidates, etc. But when those people are not doing their jobs... Well, then we have people supporting candidates and parties who are mm-hmm. actively working against them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really interesting that you make that point, and it's a very, very important one. Uh, in the past two weeks, uh, my mother, who is 87 years old and lives in Florida alone, still drives, goes to the grocery store and CBS and out to lunch with her friends, uh, there are six of them. And none of them have been particularly involved in uh, civic or political life in their community. But when they started talking about their social security check not coming, yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. The, over the last two weeks they were watching MSNBC all day long. And then I suggested to them that they listen to Washington Watch in the morning on C-SPAN. And they were listening. These are five old women, and they were listening to that. And they would call and ask my mother a question, and my mother would call me and ask me the question. I'd give her the answer, then she'd call them back. (laughs) I mean, and that went on for two solid weeks. Uh, (laughs) And they really did want to know what the debt ceiling was. And... um, and 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 what were the options? 
Yes, and this uh, is, so it, yeah. it's really important, and I hope all of you who are listening and have enjoyed our conversation as I have with Dr. Vincent Hutchings will pick up his book, which is published by Princeton University Press, Public Opinion and Democratic Accountability, How Citizens Learn About Politics, and I posted it in our chat room. Dr. Vincent Hutchings, I have so much uh, benefited uh, and enjoyed our, our conversation tonight, and I thank you so much for becoming a member of the Our Common Ground family. Thank you, Janice. It was my pleasure. Now, in in September, along with um, uh, many, many uh, members of the Academy, Dr. Raymond Winbush and um, Dr. Sandy Darity and Dr. Jared Ball and others, we're going to be having a two-week Our Common Ground special every night for two weeks. Uh, as we get ready for the close of the fiscal year of the federal government and the, all of the things that will be happening there, and I hope that you will join us. Yes. So thank you very much, and you have a, a joyous weekend, and we, in, we, we really appreciate and are grateful for your time, for your skills, for your knowledge, and the work that you do. And... Um, you can give a shout-out to our friends at the University of Michigan <laughs> for lending you to us tonight. Well, thank again, you so very much. Again, thank you, Janice. It was my pleasure. And that was uh, Dr. Vincent Hutchings. He is the author of Public Opinion and Democratic Accountability, How Citizens Learn About Politics. And for those of you who are listening, you're listening to Our Common Ground at Blog Talk Radio. We hope that you will pick that up and make it part of your library. Thank you, Alpha, for your call, house music lover, uh, Sarah. Uh, we are always appreciative to hear from you, Shaka Zulu, YJ, Lion's Den, um, Black Gower, Brother Brock is in the house in East Coast. Sam is in the house. And, of course, we're always glad to hear from Alpha. I want to cover with you before we go tonight, um, I did post it in the chat room, a very important commentary, opinion piece, at Urban Cusp in Opinions, Compromise or Concession at Whose Expense? by Dr. Wilmer Leon. He is the host of, producer and host of Inside the Issues with Wilmer Leon on Sirius XM 128, The Power. He teaches at Howard University in Washington, D.C. And you can join him, Dr. Leon's Prescriptions, on Facebook and follow him on Twitter. And he will be the co-host with me on Monday night at 10 p.m., an Our Common Ground special, to talk about this piece, Compromise or Concession at Whose Expense, and we're asking you to read it before you come to the show. That is going to be uh, program homework for you. So thank you for being with us here tonight at Our Common Ground. 
We hope that you'll have a great weekend, and we hope that you'll join us on Monday night at 10 p.m. Uh, power reviews will be um, uh, postponed. Don't forget about the Alpha show at 3 p.m. on Saturdays, and uh, Elvin Dowling and Friends on Wednesdays at TruthWorks Network. I'm Janice Graham, and as always, I'll be listening for you. All coming ground. Transforming truth to power. One broadcast at a time. Good evening. This is Janice Graham, and this is Our Common Ground. Thank you so much for being with us tonight at Our Common Ground. We're here each Saturday night, 10 p.m. Eastern Time. I'll be listening for you. Wishing you peace and power in the new week.